Send me your dad jokes, don't forget. Welcome back to the Injury Prone Fantasy Football Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Edwin Pores, Doctor of Physical Therapy, Medical Analyst at FantasyPoints.com. We got another fire episode coming at you because we have a guest. This guest is an assistant, assistant professor in topical medicine and infectious disease. She has her bachelor's degree from Kalamazoo College. She went to medical school at Michigan State. She got a residency fellowship uh, in internal medicine and pediatrics, graduate certificate, uh, her master's in clinical and translational investigation, all at Baylor College. She has a diploma of, tro- of topical medicine. Tropical medicine? I'm sorry. Did I misspell that? Or is it to- is it tropical medicine? It's tropical, yep. Tropical medicine from National School from National School of Tropical Medicine. Uh, she she has received the Scientific Research Symposium Award from the Houston Infectious Disease Society. She has also gotten the Research Symposium Award from Baylor College of Medicine, Department of Pediatrics. She also got the Fellows Research Award from Baylor College of Medicine, Department of Pediatrics. She is at Jill Weather on Twitter. She is Doctor Jill Weatherhead. We were talking about her unfortunate inherited situation that she's in. Doc, how are you doing? And can you please let the audience, the listeners know what situation we were talking about? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's really exciting to be here. Um, So before starting recording, we were talking about our uh, love of sports and particularly football. And I was explaining that I'm a huge college football fan, grew up in Michigan, so a Big Ten fan, Michigan State University. Uh, unfortunately, that also means I am an inherited Detroit Lions fan, uh, and so that's what we were discussing before starting the show. Yeah, that's. Um, what do you think of uh, Patricia and the boys? What are they doing over there? What's going on with the entire situation? I know. So I was actually really excited about Patricia coming on because he's actually a family member of a, of a friend of mine. So I was really pumped, and then coming from um, the Patriots obviously was going to be awesome, but. I, I just don't know. And so <laughs> you this know, might be the year tough. that he this, this might be the year that they uh, this is like his year, right? Like this is a year that they might have to reconstructure. Re, what's the word? Right. Jeez, reconstruction. <laughs> Restructure. Restructure. I know. So I'm really hopeful. Luckily, I also um, I'm down in Houston now. So I have the Houston Texans. And um, so I have that going for me down here, which is always really fun to be around the Texans, too. So. Well, the the nice thing about, you know, everybody likes to talk about the student debt that we have. I'm not sure if you're in debt or not. I'm indefinitely in student debt. My wife's in student debt. Oh, yeah. But the the nice thing is when you jump around from like bachelor's to graduate to residency, you have a lot of different places to choose from. So you can either be, you could be like a Baylor fan if you really wanted to. You could be a, a Texans fan. You're a Detroit fan. So you can pick and choose, right? I mean, it gives oh. you some options. Oh, yeah. We, we my <laughs> husband and I kind of, <laughs> I, we're definitely not, you know, bandwagon fans. Like, we're Michigan State football fans, whether the season's going well or not. You know, we're not going to jump off that that uh, bandwagon. But, you know, we have some options, especially down here in, in Texas for uh, professional sports, at least, where we're a little bit more likely to jump ship and, and come over here, like the Astros and the Rockets and... So many options, so many options. So (laughs) I, I was really excited to get you on here to, to talk about, and 
uh, I'm glad that you're that that you are open to talking about this. So obviously, my my audience is super male dominated. I think it's good for them to hear the perspective of a woman in all areas of sports media, just in general, specifically in medicine, because I think that based on what I know from my, what my wife tells me, the experience for a woman in medicine particularly is also unique. Can you speak to your experience as a woman in medicine and getting to the point where you are today and just sort of, honestly, you can take it whatever direction you'd like. Yeah, absolutely. So just to give the viewers a little bit more background. So I'm a, I'm a physician, but I'm also a scientist. So I have my master's in um, clinical investigation, but I'm also getting a currently getting a PhD, hopefully almost done in immunology. So I've been in training for a very long time. I've been in academia academia for a really long time. You're a beast. Uh, yeah, I'm, well, I'm, I'm a lifelong learner is what I like there to There you say. go. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I'm supposed to be a lifelong learner too. I'm not a lifelong learner the way you're a lifelong <laughs> learner. Give yourself some credit there. Yeah, but you know, it's it has been challenging and along the ways, particularly being a woman physician scientist and trying to um, both promote my career and advance while uh, having a family. I have two small children. Um, and so there, there's definitely been some very difficult times that I think are very unique to my experience being a physician scientist, mother, uh, woman scientist in, in this pathway that I've taken. And um, I've been incredibly fortunate um, to be surrounded not only by other female physician scientists who have kind of paved the way for me to move through and get to the the end goal that I want to get to. But I also have um, male mentors and uh, sponsors who have supported me, who have given me opportunities um, and really pushed me and told me I could do things that I didn't think I was capable of doing. So, you know, being in a minority position in terms of being a, a woman in science, it's it's it critical not only to have uh, people that look like you, that um, have been through same experiences as you to see them be successful. So to have those people that you can look up to that have done the journey before you, but also that are there to surround you, to pick you up, to move you forward, um, to help you get to that to that end goal. So I've been incredibly fortunate with the the mentorship that I've had, um, and been incredibly fortunate to have women scientists um, who've paid the way in front of me so that I can see where I want to go and how to get there. Absolutely. And I think that speaks to the importance of role models, um, specifically for women, like you were saying. A lot of times we we live in a, a male-dominated culture, and I think it's starting, the, the tide is starting to turn to a certain extent. But I mean, there are, there are especially in the fantasy football community, not enough uh, women who are visible, I think. And that's where in my opinion, I think that as men, as dudes, we can do a better job of highlighting the work of women in everything that we do. Um, it's just, it just becomes, I almost feel like as, as guys, we get blinders on. We don't realize that there's a, com a completely different experience out there for a woman. And I think that to see, um, especially for girls growing up, to see somebody like you or to, to hear somebody like you um, get to the point that you've gotten and are continuing to, to strive for even more. Um, I think that's great. So I just wanted to highlight that a little bit. Did you have anything else on that? You want to uh, No, no. Just thank you so much for saying that. And and I hope just like the the role models that I have, both the male and female role models that I have, that I can serve in that same position for you know the young girls interested in STEM education moving forward. That 
you know, you can make your career into whatever you want it to be, uh, even in areas that are male dominated, you know, there's, there's a place for us at the table too. So 100% that role. 100%. I think you're doing a great job so far. So let's talk about then what, what the listeners would like to know in terms of the NFL and COVID and how that it's going to, how it's going to affect the season. Um, I think now that we've especially talked about your background as a researcher and as a scientist, we have the listeners might have a good idea of why you're qualified. I mean, if they're if they doubt that you're qualified to talk about this, then they can take that up with me. Um, but you're very qualified to talk about this. So can you describe um, in your own words briefly uh, why you're qualified to talk about COVID and, and what that sort of entails, how that relates to your career? Yeah, absolutely. So I am from a physician standpoint, I am trained in both adult and pediatric infectious diseases. So what that means is that after I completed medical school, I did uh, eight additional years of training to be specialized in this field. And then after that, I did additional training to get um, certification in what's called uh, tropical medicine and global health. So that's studying disease processes, specifically infections and pathogens, that infect people on a global scale. So from a physician standpoint, I I work on these pathogens. I see these patients that have these infections. um, And I've been training for this for a long time. From the science perspective, as I mentioned, um, my, my research is on actually the host immune response. So how the human body, how a uh, immune system responds to infections in the lungs. So this is Uh, My area is particularly in a different pathogen called parasites, but similar idea as to how the the human immune response in the lungs specifically will react to something foreign, something that it doesn't like. So that is what I I currently research. And so putting that all together, uh, I have fallen into this um, area of, of both interest, concern, and wanting to express to the general public, what this disease means, how it impacts all of us, and what we can do to prevent and or contain the the disease moving forward. Absolutely. That makes a ton of sense to me. So then speaking of the spread and speaking of how to contain the virus, I mean, can you speak a little bit about what you think, how, how you think that professional sports and even collegiate sports, I mean, we saw that college football said, we're going to chug on along here. We're going to keep going. How do you think that will affect them in the long term? And um, I know we are honest, obviously, you know, pe- even researchers like you, you're really taking this day to day. But even in two weeks, three weeks, four weeks after these limited capacity games occur, um, what do you what do you foresee and how do you see that shaking out? Right. So I think you touched on something really important, Edwin, is that this is a new disease. It's a brand new, never been seen before starting in December of 2019. So the amount of data that we have learned in eight months is quite extraordinary, but every day we're learning more and more. There are still so many unknowns that it really makes it difficult to try and predict or prognosticate what's going to happen in the future. So we have to work with the knowledge that we have currently and use our knowledge of other respiratory viruses to try and understand what could happen. So, you know, this having big sporting events is something we have to be cautious about 
um, because of what we, we know and because of what we don't know. So we know that this virus is spread through respiratory droplets as one of its modes of transmission. So what does that mean? It means when you cough, talk, sing, laugh, anything coming out of your mouth, yell, you release respiratory molecules and that virus is connected to those molecules. Now, if the molecules are big, meaning they're greater than five micrometers in size, then they don't travel very far. They're, they're considered heavy and they may travel at most about six feet before they fall to the ground. So they don't, uh, they're not suspended for a long period of time. So in order to get infected in that way, which is the major mode of transmission for this virus, you have to be in close contact with another individual. And, it, and you know, originally we were talking about sneezing, coughing. Well, it can just be talking to someone in close proximity. Um, or if those respiratory droplets contaminate a surface, so you cough or talk and the respiratory droplets touch on a table and then someone else touches that table and then touches their own uh, mouth or nose or eyes, then they can get infected that way. And that's called uh, fomite transmission, indirect transmission. So these all have to be thought about when we're talking about large group gatherings, both in terms of staff and players playing a game as well as fans watching that game. Do you think that it's something that they, the NFL specifically can pull off for a period of, gosh, four, five months? Like, do you think that at some point this will begin to affect, uh, infect, I guess, specifically speaking, the players uh, at a rate that's just unsustainable? You know, it, it will likely reflect what's going on in our own communities. So if we have community control, if people are, you know, staying home when they can, they're wearing their masks. Um, they're doing social distancing and the number of cases go down significantly in the community, then the risk of having a football game is going to go down too. So it's going to largely reflect what's happening in the community because if there's no virus in the community, the players aren't going to get infected. So there's not going to be an outbreak. The problem's going to come if not every area of the country is contained at the same time, which is what we've seen, right? That there's an outbreak in New York. Now there's outbreaks down in the South. Where's the next outbreak going to be? And we don't know. So if the entire country were to get on the same team and everyone wear a mask, everyone do physical distancing, we all bring the levels down within our own communities, then the risk is going to go way down. And these games are going to be less likely to have um, terrible outbreaks. If there's widespread community transmission, then the risk is going to be incredibly high and the success of the season is going to be uh, much less. So you're saying basically it sounds like that if we get our shit together, <laughs> for lack of a better phrase, if we can keep our stuff together on the outside world, we will be helping to a certain extent or to a certain degree be reflecting what the NFL looks like on the inside in their in their semi-controlled environment. Is that is that about yeah, accurate so that, at all? Exactly. So that's one major side. The other side is is that the NFL's responsibility. So there's the community's responsibility. If you want, you know, nice things, you have to do work, <laughs> right? So if you want to have if we want to have sports, which we all do desperately, then we need to put in the work up front to reduce those that community transmission. But there's also the responsibility on the NFL side. If we're going to have games, you have to have mitigation strategies to reduce the risk of the players and the staff so that when they go back to their communities, 
they're not bringing they're they themselves are safe so that's number one priority that they stay safe but then if they get infected they're not bringing it back to the community to start a new outbreak in the community so we're all connected right and we all need to do our part so there's responsibility on both sides because what we don't want is with football there's there's so many people so that increases the risk alone if you're indoors that increases the risk now if you're traveling to different communities that increases the risk so it's really everybody needs to be involved here both the community as well as the NFL to reduce transmission in order to prevent huge outbreaks that potentially could happen. So do your part. If you're listening, do your part, wear your mask, right? Social distancing, physically distancing, do your part. And you might, you know, play, you are playing a, a cog. You're a cog in the wheel of trying to get our sports. You said something really interesting uh, there, Doc, you said that if we want nice things, we need to work for them. And I think that's so well worded. Um, I laugh. I don't remember who it was that said, um, right now the United States is, you know, a five-year-old child and, Mm -hmm. you know, the scientists and the researchers are in, in some aspects, the parent. And right now as children, we want our ice cream, which is our sports, and our scientists are saying, well, you can't have your ice cream until you eat your vegetables, which is your social distancing and your masks. And I really think that um, yeah. that's what I was thinking of when you were talking. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't I couldn't <laughs> agree more. And, you know, it's it's hard. I understand that, you know, it, we're we're used to living our lives the way we want to live them. And now we're being asked to do something for the greater good. And um, and that can be hard and it, there can be some inconvenience. But the the impact that it has is so significant, not only to bring back something like sports, which from, you know, a mental health standpoint is fantastic for everybody um, who's interested in sports, but also just to protect your neighbors, to protect your community members um, who are at high risk of having severe disease. I mean, these are, this is a major illness that gets people very ill. And we as individuals have a, opportunity to do something really great and that's to protect our neighbors absolutely you talked about what it does too can you chat a little bit about how this might affect elite athletes because i think that as younger as the younger population we have a propensity to over the last few months say oh you know i'll be fine if i get it it won't affect me oh if the athletes get it they probably won't even be symptomatic do you what do you think about that mindset and what do you know you know just from a scientific perspective um, how true that is and how this might affect an NFL athlete who gets infected. Right. So that's a really good question. And there's um, kind of a multi-answer to that. The first is, to be clear, young, healthy athletes can certainly get this virus. They can definitely get ill from this virus. They're not immune to it. They're just going to be less likely to have very severe disease. Um, but that doesn't mean it can't happen. Um we know that they can get sick. We're seeing it um, earlier on this month where the Red Sox pitcher, for example, got myocarditis, which is a sequelae from this virus. Um, we've seen multiple college football players being at least uh, reported having myocardial symptoms as well. So it, you're not immune if you're young. So you can get sick. The other part of that is if you get this virus, you're now a nidus to give it to somebody else who has underlying comorbidities and who are more likely to have severe disease than you. So one of the main reasons we are seeing these large outbreaks in, in 
more recently compared to in earlier in the disease process or in the pandemic is younger people are getting infected. So if you look at the, the percentage of young individuals or of all people in the United States with COVID-19, one of the highest percentages in the 20 year old age group. So they're certainly getting the virus and then they can spread it to other people, even if they don't get sick themselves. So it's kind of a two pronged thing. One, you can still get sick Two, you can still give it to other people. And then you're around staff who may be older, who may have other underlying comorbidities. And that's not even to address that a lot of our, the athletes do have underlying um, uh, illnesses or diseases and, and they're going to be at risk too. You talk about athletes who have asthma or, you know, other lying health conditions that are that this will put their lives at risk as well. Absolutely. I think that it's something that from what I've learned, just talking to you, uh, talks with the other docs I've had is that it's really a um, it's not we're not out of the woods uh, just because that these athletes are, you know, in top physical shape doesn't mean that they can't spread the virus. It doesn't mean that it won't affect them negatively. Um, and then since obviously this is a fantasy football podcast, from that perspective, you have to consider that this your your team and your players aren't immune from this uh, from this affecting them. So I think that's very, very, very well put by you. So do you think that, you know, just from we talked about a lot hypothetical, right? If we do our part, if we wear our mask, if we physically distance, if we do our part to reduce community outbreaks and reduce um, just the chances of of spread and transmitting the virus, then we can help the NFL. What do you see more from a realistic perspective? Do you think that the NFL can function? Do you think that we will as a society? So I know that's a big question, right? And I don't mean to put it all on your shoulders, but do you think that as a society, as it, as it is today, do you think that the NFL will help the NFL enough to be able to function on a semi-normal basis? You know, I think there are certainly areas of the country right now that could have normal-ish seasons. Like the Northeast, for example, although getting hit really hard up front in this pandemic has done a great job of controlling the virus and getting things um, towards a more uh, realistic functional level. But there's other parts of the country, particularly in the South, where it's completely out of control and you cannot have a normal season with multiple people, hundreds of people gathering at one time in close proximity and expect there not to be outbreaks. So, you know, there's, this is where it's hard is that it's not uniform across the United States. You know, there's other countries where this was a little bit more straightforward because they're smaller and could uh, control things more uniformly. And so could bring back sports like, for example, in Germany or in South Korea, South Korea, where they brought back baseball, you know, it's a little bit easier to control in those situations where the, the country's smaller and more uniform um, in terms of its policies and procedures, where here there's there's so much diversity, um, both um, geographically and politically, that it's really difficult for everyone to be at the same place at the same time during this pandemic. So unless you restrict travel and you're doing this within in an area with low viral transmission and or doing a bubble like the NBA, it's going to be very difficult to not have outbreaks occur. Do you think that with the most up-to-date, well, let me back up. What is the most, I guess, effective, efficient, and up-to-date testing procedures that we have for the virus itself? And how do you see that playing into the NFL's potential for successfully completing the season without, you know, too much of, of, uh, of a big sort of big outbreaks? Right. So the testing 
is always problematic. <laughs> it's uh, very, very complicated because again, we're talking about a new virus. So when we make new tests, you need to compare that to a reference standard, which is not available because this is a new virus. So the determining sensitivity and specificity, so how well the test is performing can, is very difficult. And especially because a lot of these tests are have received what's called emergency use authorization or EUAs from the FDA, which is necessary in a time of pandemic, but they don't go through the same scrutiny that they do in non-pandemic times. So the start point is, is not great uh, to begin with. Now, the testing options, um, there's really three major testing options, and it really depends on the question that you're asking as to what diagnostic test you're going to choose. So if you want to know, do you right now have active infection or have detectable virus at least, you're going to do what's called a molecular test. And this is that PCR polymerase chain reaction test that we've heard the most about, hmm. as well as the nucle nucleic acid ampli amplification tests. Um, that are more recently coming about. And what these tests do is they detect the genetic material of the virus. So it doesn't tell you if there's live virus necessarily, but it tells you if you have active, if you have the presence of the virus there. And so that's the mainstay in terms of active surveillance. Do you have the virus or not? Um, the sensitivity and specificity are higher for that from what we know. And what that means is that if, if you have high sensitivity um, and specificity, that means the false negative and false positives are going to be less, um, which is what you want. And you specifically want low, you do not want to have uh, false negative tests. Um, that That is problematic at, uh, yep. mm -hmm. uh, majorly problematic. Very so, problematic. <laughs> so, so, you know, you could, a false positive isn't great either in terms of resources and quarantining, but a false negative is very detrimental um, for the entirety of the community. Um, so those tests are what's more likely to be used. Now, they can take a longer period of time to get test results back, which is what has been frustrating for a lot of the professional sports leagues in terms of turnaround time. The second test is uh, an antigen test, which are typically more rapid, so you can get them back, the results back in 30 minutes. The problem is the, the specificity is high, meaning if you test positive, it's really likely going to be positive. Mm -hmm. But the sensitivity is low, meaning if you test negative, that doesn't mean you don't have the disease. So you would have a, you can have higher rates of false negatives, which again is the, the bad part. So if you do have a negative test for that antigen test, you then have to go back and do a PCR test anyways. So that that's uh, that's a problematic part with that. Although it's rapid, you can detect the people who really have it quickly, which is helpful. But if they if the test turns back negative, you still have to do one of those molecular tests. And that's so interesting. That's fascinating to me. I didn't know that the specificity and the sensitivity were such were so dichotomous in that way. Yeah. I mean, I guess it, it makes sense. But to I'm looking at so this is this is just just tweeted out about ten minutes ago. Tom Pilicero, who's an NFL reporter. He said the NFL sent clubs updated COVID-19 protocols that allow players and other team personnel with a preliminary positive quote preliminary positive test to return to club facilities the same day if a rerun and a point of care test both come back negative. Um, what do you think about that? Do you do you have I don't did that make sense? I don't know if I, I can explain um, it. Anyway. Yeah, I, I don't that doesn't make complete sense to me. If 
if you have a positive test, I would go with that positive test, unless it's similar to um, uh, a week or two ago, there was the huge, like 77 cases that were false positives um, that were all run on the same. Um, oh, right. At the, the same lab. Yeah. At the same lab. So if, if you have a cohort like that, where they're all false where there's a false positive on the same plate in the same lab from multiple different teams. Now that makes sense. Um, that's likely truly going to be a false positive and they found where in the step that was, that went wrong. But if you have an individual who has, you know, a, a positive test, I mean, I, it, you can have follow-up negative screenings. It, it's just really difficult to say if that, which one's truly right at that point. So I would, I would definitely for the sake of the community, follow the, the positive test, even though that's not going to be the more popular answer. That's so interesting, right? And then the next yeah. tweet that he said after that, Tom Pilsero at Tom Pilsero, he said, previously, anyone with a preliminary positive test needed to wait at least 24 hours for another PCR test to come back negative as well. The change is important as it accelerates the process of identifying false positives. In-season yeah. testing cadence is still being finalized. I think that's so funny, Doc, because yeah. they are uh, very obviously... Um, going the opposite direction of everything you just told us, right? Everything, the skinny of everything you just explained in such a succinct way was that we need to be careful of false negatives. Right. <laughs> Here the NFL is prioritizing false positives. That's exactly right. And that's really so, dangerous um, to do. Very dangerous, yeah. But it depends on what testing, they're, what exact test they're talking about. But if you do a a PCR test and it's positive, and then you follow that up with a point of care antigen test and it's negative, I'm going with the PCR test as the true value. Um, but it really depends what testing uh, he's talking about. But I, I, you know, in terms of community uh, safety, you want to avoid false negatives. Well, here we are, man. How ironic is that, that we're having this conversation and you just <laughs> mentioned how important <laughs> our yeah. part is. And it seems like the NFL is, uh, put to put it kindly, they're not quite doing their part in that specific policy, it seems. What do you think then about, uh, sort of changing gears here, we, we talked about positive tests, negative tests, and the sensitivity, specificity, and what that means. So what are we seeing? Because I'm sure this is different even from last week. What are we seeing with people who are reinfected? Is that happening? If a player, for example, you know, Ezekiel Elliott is a big one that gets thrown out. He's had it before he tested positive. Is it possible, for example, for him to have it again? Let's say, I don't know, November. Yeah, great question and very timely, actually. So just last week, the first official reinfection case was documented in Hong Kong, um, and it was proven by genetic molecular testing of of the actual sequencing of the virus. So not just the PCR, but they actually sequenced out the virus to show that they were um, different infections and not the same one. So um, there since then have been all their reported reinfection cases. Um, and it seems like at least early in the pandemic, it's rare to get reinfected. So there's at least some early immunity that develops, whether it's um, from antibody development, which are usually called neutralizing antibodies that are released from uh, B cells or what are called B lymphocytes, or from some sort of memory T cell or T lymphocytes. So there's some early immunity, it seems, because otherwise we'd be seeing widespread reinfection, right? So we're, right. you know, in our area, at least in the United States, four or five, four months into us, we, we should have seen uh, reinfection. Now, 
the scientific studies are suggesting that that those antibodies, at least, there's not a lot of data on the T cells, but the antibodies start to wane within about uh, eight to 12 weeks. So that two to three month, those antibodies start to come down. So if it's largely developed um, dependent on neutralizing antibodies, and we're seeing decline in those numbers a few weeks to months afterwards, then we are going to start seeing reinfections in the next couple of weeks to months. Uh, unless, of course, we have community transmission down, of course. So if there's no virus circulating, you're not going to get reinfected. So there's a lot to learn about reinfection. It is certainly uh, a possibility. Uh, we know with other coronaviruses, you can get reinfected. Um, so those endemic coronaviruses that are circulating each year that cause upper respiratory infections, the common cold, that type of thing, uh, that you can get that more than once. So it's certainly possible if you have been tested positive before that you are not in the clear, you need to still wear a mask, you still need to do physical distancing. Uh, hopefully you get a, at least at minimum a couple of months of immunity, um, but that's, that's not known. We just don't know. It's one of those pieces where the, the immune system is so tricky that it's take, it takes a long time to really tease this out as to, to what's going on. And we're relatively early in this pandemic, so it's hard to know the long-term outcomes, the long-term immunity, or what we call the durability of immunity yet, because we're only in a few months into this. Yeah, I think that's something that's super important to, to, to keep in mind. And it sounds almost, and correct me if I'm wrong here, it sounds almost like it's similar to the flu where the flu shot is different every year. And depending on when you um, had the flu shot, for example, uh, you could have a lowered immunity by the time, you know, January, February rolls around. Right. So it's, it's a little bit similar to that. Just to, to be clear that influenza, why it's so unique and why we need flu vaccine each year is that it, it shifts. So those kind of spiky proteins that the influenza have, they mutate. And so our immune system might not recognize it as well the following year because it's mutated. And so each year they make a new vaccine guessing or predicting what that mu new mutation is going to be to, um, to prep your immune system to fight that vaccine, to fight that virus. Hopefully that's not going to be the case with, um, with SARS-CoV-2. There have been mutations. All viruses mutate. That's what they do. Um, there haven't been huge mutations that have been seen so far. There have been a few documented, but hopefully it's not, it doesn't turn into something like influenza where it mutates each year and you need to adjust the vaccine each year. But your point is well taken that, you know, when you get your flu vaccine, if you get it in August, the durability of those antibodies aren't, aren't going to last you most likely till May, right? So you want to get your flu vaccine end of September, early October, so that those antibodies last through the entire flu season because they do start to wane over time. Right. That makes sense. So then uh, uh, the last question I'll ask you then is what, I guess it's a two pronged question. I, and maybe we've already answered it. We probably, you've, you've already actually, I think I've heard the answer you're going to say, but I, I want you to emphasize it if you feel the need, what should or can um, the NFL specifically do to help, you know, prevent the spread and should NFL stadiums allow, you know, this 25% capacity in terms of preventing, uh, you know, a public health out, you know, a public health, you know, scenario, we're already in a pandemic. So I guess preventing another outbreak within the public. Right. So the first part is 
the NFL needs to be following the science. They need to be following data and putting the health of not only the players and the staff, but the greater community as the first priority. So we all, like I mentioned, we all want football back. We all want sports back. But if we don't have a functional society because we're sick or in the hospital, then the sports don't really matter. So we need to make sure that we're taking care of people's health first. And that is a responsibility of the NFL because if the players get sick, if the staff get sick, if they, you know, we don't want that to happen first and foremost. And we don't want them, people who get sick who are well, or those who are well, who have the infection to take it back to their communities and cause outbreaks. So the science has to come first and the health of the safe, health and safety of the players, staff, and the greater community need to be a priority above all other things, no matter what the other influences are, those are the two priorities. And if you use science to drive your policies and procedures, then it's, it's fairly straightforward. You know, you need, you cannot have large group gatherings um, with people in close contact if there's widespread viral transmission within the community. Um, so that, that has to be a priority to drag down that community transmission. And when, when people are in close contact, you know, people go to work, there's essential workers, and um, we've been doing a great job reducing transmission at the workplace. And you do that by reducing close contact with people, wearing face coverings at all times. And for, the, for um, sports, particularly NFL, would be at all times unless you're physically on the field playing. And then having, you know, the, the disinfecting, the hand washing, all of those things in place. And then the last part is having the capability, which they do have because they have the resources to do appropriate testing, um, isolating, contact tracing, and quarantining um, that keeps everybody safe. And, and the priority should not be getting people out back on the field as soon as possible. The priority should be what is the safest thing for the community. So those are things that NFL can do. In terms of the fans in the stadium, I think it's a big problem. And um, I don't think it should be a priority to have fans in the stadium until community transmission is reduced and virus is controlled. If you have even 25%, that is a lot of people um, in a small area, particularly if it's an indoor arena, um, is massively problematic. Um, you know, any, as I mentioned previously, any screaming, yelling, even talking, but especially with that force of screaming and yelling and singing, um, you expel these uh, particles and you can actually, what's called aerosolize them, which means those um, droplets are much smaller and can stay suspended in the air and for longer and travel further. And so it's a bigger infectious threat. So it, it's really problematic to have fans. I think the focus is one, getting sports back two should be getting fans in the in the stadium so we should see what happens first just bringing the sports back to begin with and if all goes smoothly with that then consider fans coming back i i think that's so interesting that uh you're i mean you're spot on i i couldn't agree with you more um and honestly i say that but there's nothing to agree about i mean that's just fact everything that you're saying is there's no opinion in it um, right. It all makes sense to me, but it's funny to me that, and I'm hypocritical because I'm, I'm complicit in this um, because I do what I do. I'm an injury, quote unquote, injury analyst, and the NFL is the source of that. But I think it's funny that before the NFL put out a protocol for, you know, uh, transmission reduction, before they put out what their testing procedures were going to be, before they put out what their, you know, stadium capacities were going to be, 
they went ahead and took care of those sponsors. They uh, <laughs> one of the first statements they put out was, "Oh yeah, for the seats that we won't use, we're gonna let sponsors buy up that that area, and we're gonna put our sponsorships right. up there." That was the first place their minds went. So, right. so frustrating. Exactly. Um, they should hire you, Doc, to to <laughs> well, tell them what to, what to do. <laughs> They want to. I'm. I'm available. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. No. Really. I mean, they would benefit from listening to somebody yeah. like you. And and honestly, I don't even think that it's. If we're being realistic, it, I don't even think it has anything to do with them hearing what is the right. right steps. I think it's them choosing to to go the opposite direction there. And we know their motives there, unfortunately. But hey, yeah. hopefully there's a chance. So you're saying there's a chance, right? I That's what a lot of people say. There's a chance. Yeah. You know, I listen. I've said from the beginning, I am a sports fanatic. My like when the NCAA basketball tournament was canceled, my world came crumbling down. It was horrible. Um, yeah. But you know, I want these the sports back as soon as possible. But I also, you know, I'm tired of seeing people sick. I'm tired of people dying from this disease. I'm I'm tired of seeing my patients scared and not being able to go out because they have underlying comorbidities. You know, we have a huge responsibility to protect our community members and and it's on all it's on all of us to do that and and to protect our healthcare workers who are working overtime and putting their lives at risk um, every day to save to save people um, and it's and they're exhausted and and it's been a lot it's for everybody this whole pandemic has been a lot for everybody and there's been a lot of sacrifices that everybody has made there's financial issues that people are going through and so the sooner we can get through this into the other side, the better. And the more upfront and the the more we're able to follow the science now, the quicker we're going to get through this. And so I just want to emphasize something that you said, Edwin, that these are not my opinions. I look at the data and I, I'm telling you what the data is showing. I don't put opinion into this. Um, and so it, especially in our current climate where we have social media and, you know, there's a lot of voices out there look to the to the scientists who are talking about data and facts and not opinions um and you can't go wrong i love that that's honestly one of my favorite lines that i've had on this podcast so far you can't go wrong follow the data follow the science it's i'm, yeah. I'm all about it i'm all about it we'll let you get out of here doc but i did want to ask i didn't put this on the show sheet but i ask every every uh guest that comes on since it's the injury prone fantasy football podcast, we ask for a band-aid of advice. It can be anything from NFL related, professional related, life related, any type of band-aid of advice, a piece of advice that you have for the listeners, what would it be? And I put you on the spot so I can filibuster. No for problem. You. I I have two. One is COVID related, which is wear your mask. Always wear your mask. There's no reason not to wear a mask. There's only a few circumstances where people cannot wear a mask. So wear a mask, do your part. Um, and then, um, wait, let, let me, let me address that one real quick. Yeah. Joe. Okay. So should I wear my mask under my chin? Should I wear it to the side of my cheek? What do you recommend? Right. How do I recommend, or you recommend wearing a mask? So mask it sounds are, ridiculous, but what I see is no, it's, it's so true. So wear your mask up over your nose and down under your chin and the type of mask that you wear, you know, we're learning more about that. Of course, there's more and more data. Um, but the big thing is covering your nose and underneath your chin. The other big thing, um, is if you're wearing a mask that has the filter on it, that doesn't protect anybody but you. So don't wear the mask with the filter on it. That's, that's the other little piece of Perfect. advice. 
Which ones? Are, what do those look like? What do they? What do they have filtered? Which ones? Um, they just have a little um, plastic thing on the outside, not the okay. ones where you insert it in and there's a covering, but where the filter is on the outside of the mask. So it's a little plastic thing on the outside of the mask. You can see images on the CDC website because they specifically say don't use those types. But you know, your cotton, your medical grade mask, um, the cotton masks that have a couple of plies of uh, cotton is going to be great. Um, those homemade ones are, are fantastic. So there's a lot of different options and wear them correctly. Uh, you can wash the cotton ones and reuse them. You can reuse some of the, the, um, the ones that you throw away just by putting them in a paper bag um, for a few days. So there's lots and lots of options and only a handful of reasons not to wear one, um, which, you know, so wear your mask. Wear your mask. Exactly. I just wanted to stop at that. I wanted to marinate in that point because I think it's yeah. super important. Sorry. What was your next piece of advice? Oh, I got to think that now that one I got to think about. Um, so the next piece of advice, oh, is exercise. Yeah. yeah. So it's so important. Oh even gosh, yeah. I'm going to bring it back to the pandemic, even though I didn't want to. So even during the pandemic, it's important to get outside and exercise um, and and really stay healthy because we're what we're seeing is the patients that are getting more severe illness are the people who have underlying comorbidities, meaning things like diabetes, hypertension, um, obesity, and those things in, in many aspects can be prevented by one, seeing your primary care physician, but two, by getting regular exercise and eating healthy. So um, exercise is important for your physical health, but it's also critical for your mental health, especially when you're having to physical do physical distance and you can't go out and you can't see people. Get outside and get some exercise. I love it. I love it so much. Thanks so much again. This is Dr. Jill Weatherford. Weather, I'm sorry. Jeez, Jill Weatherhead. I don't know why I said Weatherford. I'm not sure what was in my head there. Dr. Jill Weatherhead. She is a genius. She's a researcher. She knows what she's talking about. She says to wear your mask. She says to get exercise. Do you have anything else before we get out of here, Doc? No, that's about it. Thank you for having me. No, of course. Thanks for coming on. It really means a lot that you'd come on. So that's it. Um, thanks for tuning in. Make sure to give a rate, a review. Make sure to follow Dr. Jill Weatherhead at Jill Weather on Twitter. And that's it. We will see you next time. Me your dad jokes, don't forget.